PBS aired a series this last week on television on its frontline program entitled From Jesus to Christ, The First Christians. The series examined the origins of Christianity and its development as a world religion. The first segment was dedicated primarily to the life and times of Jesus. Perhaps some of you saw it. The contributing scholars <clears throat> included recognized theologians from liberal schools of religion and seminaries across the country. Nearly all of them, I believe, are associated with the controversial Jesus Seminar. This think tank, I mean think tank of higher critical scholars, pardon me, has, uh, has an agenda. And the agenda is to, they say, discover the historical Jesus behind what they perceive to be the traditions and fabrications of the New Testament. You see, they approach it with a bias, and that is that the story of Jesus as recorded in the Gospels is nothing more than a collection of imperfect memories and fabrications and legends. And so they are seeking, they say, to find the historical Jesus. Sadly, they miss him by a mile. Now, if you want to know what more I think of the Jesus seminar, you can see me afterward if I'm unclear about it. But I do want to say that I found the, interest, the, the series interesting. If one can wade through the bias of the writers, it's worth watching from the historical and cultural and even the photographic uh, perspectives. I was troubled, though, by what they did in the series in establishing what seems to be an antinomy, a contradiction between fact and faith. In other words, they claim that the facts, as they have discovered them, are over here, and that faith is over here on this side that somehow the two are in contradiction. And when the facts are known, we have to then believe. The facts, they say, are established from archaeology and from history and anthropology. What we believe, faith, is what we wish were true, even though the facts don't substantiate them. The faith, they say, is what we desire to be true, and in fact, they applied that to the resurrection. They admit that there is historical evidence that Jesus died by crucifixion, but they say there is no evidence of the resurrection. And so they propose that the followers of Jesus created the idea of the resurrection in order to make sense of what had happened to Jesus and to them. In other words, they wished that it were true, and so for them it was true. That is not a biblical definition of faith, my friend. Genuine faith, the kind of faith that God calls for and honors, does not rest merely upon our wishes or our desires. It rests upon evidence. It rests upon proof or testimony. God never expects our faith to contradict facts, although he does call upon our faith 
to sometimes supersede facts. That is, we may not have the facts and therefore we're called upon to believe the truth of his testimony. The real question posed by these apostate scholars is this. Is the historical evidence that we have in the Bible reliable or not? These kinds of scholars have no problem accepting the word of Josephus and other ancient historians. They do not question the writings of those people, and yet they refuse to give the Bible the same courtesy or the same credence. And yet, the Bible has never been proven to be an error. Time and time again, doubts about its accuracy, its historicity, have been overwhelmed by the archaeologist's spade or the historian's eye. And so I want to think about the resurrection this morning and, and simply take the historical evidence that we have. Believing the Bible to be true, not approaching it with a bias that somehow it couldn't be true, but accepting the Bible for exactly what it says as a historical document. What do we know about the resurrection? Well, here are the facts, some of them. We know first that Jesus expected to be raised from his grave. It was not a creation of his followers. He himself predicted he would rise from the grave. In Luke 9.22, he said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Later, again in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18, verses 31 through 33, he warns the twelve, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be delivered up to the Gentiles, and will be mocked and mistreated and spit upon. And after they have scourged him, they will kill him. And the third day he will rise again. So what do we know from the historical record? It is this that Jesus expected to be raised from his grave on the third day. And my conclusion is this, if the resurrection had not occurred, every other thing that Jesus said would have been invalidated. Everything. We know that Jesus expected to be raised. Secondly, from the historical evidence, we know that his tomb was empty on the third day. Again, Luke, the master historian, by the way, every bit the historian that Josephus was, only more accurate. Luke, in the 24th chapter of his gospel, writes about the three women who were the first witnesses of the resurrection. On the first day of the week at early dawn, they came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. And when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And it happened that while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling apparel. 
And as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. John recounts the eyewitnesses of the two disciples who first arrived at the tomb. He says, Peter therefore went forth and the other disciple, that's John himself, and they were going to the tomb, and the two of them were running together, and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. Simon Peter therefore also came, following him, and entered the tomb. And he beheld the linen wrappings lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but, but rolled up in a place by itself. So the other disciple who had first come to the tomb entered then also, and he saw and believed. We know from the historical record that the tomb in which Jesus was placed after his crucifixion was empty on the morning of the third day. If the tomb had not been empty, Jesus' followers would have faced ridicule and been quickly dismissed. But they were not because the tomb was, in fact, empty. We also know this from the historical evidence, that his enemies did not take his body. In fact, they put a guard in front of the grave to ensure that it would stay there. The Gospel of Matthew tells us about this. On the next day, which is the one after the preparation, it says, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate and said, Sir, we remember that when he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days I am to rise again. You see, even his enemies knew that he expected to rise the third day. Somehow these scholars, two millennia later, haven't figured that out. Therefore, they said, give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day, lest the disciples come and steal him away and say to the people, He has risen from the dead. And the last deception be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard. Go, make it as secure as you know how. And they went and made the grave secure, and along with the guard, they set a seal on the stone, a Roman seal, so that if anyone broke it, he would be punished by death by Rome. You see, they were determined to keep his body in the grave. The last thing in the world they wanted to do was to take his body out of the grave. But they failed in their efforts. He rose from the grave, and later his enemies schemed to cover up what they could not explain. Matthew goes on to say, Some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all that had happened. And when they had assembled with the elders and council together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers. They bribed them and said, You are to say his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. 
And if this should come to the governor's ears, we will win him over and keep you out of trouble. And they took the money and did as they had been instructed. And this story, says Matthew, was widely spread among the Jews and is to this day. And so, what are the facts? The historical evidence is that his, body, his enemies did not have, nor could they produce his body. If, in fact, they had stolen his body, they could have produced it, and that would have been the end of Christianity. The Jesus Seminar scholars ignore the dilemma of the empty tomb, but it brings me to the fourth fact that we know from the historical evidence, and that is that his followers were transformed. We know this. The historical record says so. They were not in the mood to create some resurrection myth. They were dispirited and depressed and fearful for their lives, for they were associated now with this man who had been crucified. And yet they were changed from a fearful, dispirited band of adherents to a joyful, triumphant body of apostles who fearlessly proclaimed a resurrected Lord. Why? What changed them? It is that they saw him, individually and in groups, groups large and groups small. They ate with him, they touched him, they talked with him. The empirical evidence for the resurrection could not be greater in the historical record. Here is proof that Jesus bodily rose from the grave. He said to them after his resurrection, See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And while they could not believe it for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. And again, Luke the historian summarizes all of the accounts of his resurrection and says in the book of Acts, the first chapter and the third verse, to these, his followers, he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs appearing to them over a period of 40 days. My friend, there is no other explanation for the transformation in the disciples. The powerful change in their disposition can only be explained in terms of the fact that they were convinced that Jesus truly had been raised from the dead. Now these are historical facts that are drawn from an ancient document that has withstood every attempt by skeptics and critics through the ages to undermine its accuracy in every respect, the Bible. And today we stand upon the historical record of Jesus Christ, his birth, his life, his death, and his resurrection from the dead. 
We know these facts. Therefore, we believe. You see, there is no battle between faith and facts. God expects our faith to be grounded and built upon the facts that we have. We know these facts. Therefore, we believe that Jesus is the Savior or the judge of every person. That's how the Bible portrays him. He is either your Savior today or he is your judge today. And one day you will stand before him and he will fulfill that role in your life. Saving you or judging you. And we believe, furthermore, that all who trust him are saved. And all who reject him are condemned. That is the message of the Bible. That is the message of our faith. We believe because of the historical facts that we have at hand that all who trust in him, believing that his death on the cross was for their sins, that he died as their substitute, taking God's punishment, God's uh, condemnation upon himself, that all who believe in him will be forgiven of sins and will receive eternal life. But we also believe that all who neglect or reject that message continue on under the condemnation of God. On this Easter Sunday, the message, I hope, is very clear to you. That Jesus Christ is alive And that truth has implications that reach to the heart of every one of us. And if today you are trusting him as your Savior, if you have received him by faith into your life to forgive you and to be the Lord of your life, if that is a reality to you, then rejoice. And on this Easter day, give yourself anew to him. For this one is worthy of our worship. He is worthy of our service. He is worthy of our sacrifice. But if you have not trusted in him yet, if your life has not yet been transformed by placing your faith in these facts, we invite you to do that today and to receive him this morning into your heart, into your life to change you now and to change your destiny forever. Let's pray together. Abraham Kuypers, a theologian, has written, In the valley of the shadow of death, the great highway divides itself. One road leads upward to eternal life and the other downward to eternal death. And Jesus Christ makes all the difference. Father, I pray this morning that there may be some friend who is here who will 
trust in the Savior, believing that Christ died for his sins, and in that faith find forgiveness and eternal life. And in that act of faith, have his road changed so that he's no longer walking toward death, but walking toward life. May Jesus make a difference in that life today. And Father, may all of us who know you, who profess with our hearts deep, abiding faith, May we go out of here determined to live anew, to give ourselves afresh to the living Christ, yielding to the powerful Spirit of God who lives within us, experiencing every day the power of the resurrection of Jesus as we walk through this world. We thank you for the difference that Jesus makes. And we thank you for the truth, for the historical facts that you have given to us upon which our faith rests secure. Would you stand together with me and our heads are bowed? As we think about our lives ahead, Let's just sing this chorus, Because He Lives, I Can Face Tomorrow. Because He lives, I can face tomorrow. Because He lives, all fear is God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you and a blessed Easter to you. We're dismissed.